Well, good morning. Um, so I mentioned last week that we'd be having two sermons that uh, serve as a contrast to each other um, last week and this week. Uh, we looked last week at Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, and we uh, saw an event where Israel had just conquered Jericho and the city of Ai, and after the victory of Ai, they paused uh, to obey something that God had commanded them to do when they would enter the promised land, to stand on the mountains of Ebal and Gerizim, to recommit themselves to the law of God, to the word of God. Joshua coated, coated a stone in lime, which would make it completely white, and he was to etch into the stone a very distinct copy of the law. Um, that would take a while, even if it was just the Ten Commandments, as like a base, uh, base summary of the law. Um, they were to have the law read before the entire congregation, including the strangers and the children. Then they were to shout curses and blessings at each other from the two mountains. Just an incredible scene. And we talked about how that emphasized the value that Israel was to place on their relationship with God and their relationship to his word. What we're going to see in Judges 17 and 18 is, as you may have noticed um, already from the scripture reading, is we're going to see a contrast to that and how they catastrophically failed to maintain the principles that God was trying to teach them to uphold and the longevity of how they, they were to uphold those principles. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 17 and 18. And I want you to see a connection here um, between chapter 17 all the way through the end of the book of Judges. Judges is, for the most part, a chronological book. So chapters 1 through 16 uh, really follows a timeline, but chapter 16 with the death of Samson is the end of the timeline of the book of Judges. Chapter 17 and 18 is all really one event, and then chapters 19 through 21 is another big event. And these events are more reflections. There are no judges in chapter 17 and 18 or 19 through 21. There's no judges. And we find out that these events actually seem to have taken place fairly early in the period of the judges. In chapter 18, we're going to see that the Danites were still in the midst of conquering their territory. We find out in chapter 20 that Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, was still serving in the events of 19 through 21. And these things are meant to be extremely shocking because the spiritual condition of Israel in both of these events is just catastrophic. It is horrendously shocking. And to know that this was fairly early in the period of the judges is, again, just meant to be even more shocking. But look at chapter 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did, was right, did what was right in his own eyes. Look at chapter 18, the beginning of chapter 18. In those days there was no king in Israel. And now look at the end of chapter 21, which is the final chapter of the book of Judges, the final verse of Judges. Take it, I'll give you just a couple seconds to turn there. Chapter 21, 25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What we find in chapters 17 and 18, what does it look like when people are religiously doing what's right in their own eyes? And chapter 19 through 21, which we're not going to look at this morning, we find out how that affects what people do morally 
when they're not religiously following God. Uh, just to give you like some, I don't know, interest in maybe reading that sometime after this lesson, I think Judges 19 through 21 is probably one of the most shocking and disgusting places in the entire Bible to read. And I want you to keep in mind, as we, even we're reading chapter 17 and 18, these are God's people. These are the children who are not very far separated at all from the events that we looked at last week and who would have been uh, enough aware of their history to choose to follow it. But the, again, the neglect is, is shocking. So let's start by looking at a little bit more of something that um, I think will um, hone us in a little bit in these events. In Joshua 18, verse 1, when Israel had finished conquering the initial series of territories, they didn't conquer everything, but when they had finished conquering an initial series of territories, in Joshua 18, verse 1, they set up the tabernacle in Shiloh, which is in in Ephraim. So I've circled that with the black box and the white highlight. So you'll notice Ephraim, in terms of the territory of Israel, is fairly central. So right in the middle of Israel... You have the tabernacle set up in Shiloh, which made Ephraim not only a central physical location in the nation of Israel, it should have been like the central religious hub of the nation because the tabernacle is where everybody should come to make their sacrifices, to come to the altar, to inquire of God, to connect with the priests. And we're going to find that this is all going to be happening in Ephraim with a Levite, who were not very far, probably only a few miles away from the tabernacle on a main road that intersected through the nation. So let's start looking at Micah and the Levite again. And we're going to start looking at verses 1 through 6 and the tragedy of Micah's household. Uh, Judges 17, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to read this again. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. So remember, center of the nation, We're going to find out this is on a main road going through Ephraim. This would have been maybe just a few miles from the tabernacle. Verse 2. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So there's something good here, right? Um, Micah is a thief. He took his mother's 1,100 pieces of silver, which seems like a monumental amount of money, but she utters this curse in his hearing and that convicted him to repent and he confessed to his mom and said, hey, you know, I'm the one who took your your silver. And maybe he was guilty and worried that maybe this curse that she uttered was going to come true and that moved him to uh, confess this to her. And, I mean, you look at the end of verse 2. This is great. Blessed be my son by the Lord. I mean, wonderful, right? Uh, It's a good thing that he's repentant and convicted. But then you look at verse 3 and where they immediately direct this conviction. His mother 
wholly dedicates the silver, which by that she apparently means only 200 pieces of this 1,100 pieces of silver, for her son to then make a graven image to the Lord and a molten image. And in verse 4, Micah seems to very eagerly do this. And verse 5, this household, which as we are going to look further and further, this seems to be implied is a fairly huge household. Multiple Danites are going to be staying here as they travel to conquer their territory. But now they have their own religious center, right? Micah, he's got a shrine, a household idol, an ephod. You know, there's a lot of religion being practiced in this household and even consecrates one of his sons to be his priest. Everything just seems to be going well. And again, she dedicates, Micah's mom, dedicates the silver to make an idol in God's name. Back in the events of Joshua chapter 8, when they were standing on these two mountains shouting blessings and cursings at one another, here's something that they shouted loudly on the mountains. This is in Deuteronomy 27, verse 15. Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image in abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen and sets it up in secret. And all the congregation would say, Amen. So I want to ask you this. Does Micah's mother's blessing magically undo God's curse? Does her blessing have more power than what God had already said? And you know there's an irony that her blessing her son in the name of the Lord is actually putting him and her household under God's curse. So again, verse 6, the text is trying to get us to pay attention here. Hey, this is happening because... Nobody's keeping anybody accountable to the law of God, and this is just the Wild West. Everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. Let's keep reading. Let's look at the tragedy of the Levite. Now, there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. By the way, the Levites had set aside cities all around Israel. They did not get their own specific land. They would have been scattered among all the other nations, Bethlehem was not one of the places where Levites were supposed to be living as their home. So that's, that's already alarming. Verse 8, Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem and Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite. The young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as priest. So obviously, Micah makes the Levite a seemingly great offer. The Levite is just kind of aimlessly wandering around, just verse 9, he says, just wherever he can find a place. Micah promises him uh, what seems to be a fair income, clothing, housing, maintenance, family. I mean, so all of that just sounds great, doesn't it? So in verse 11, the Levite agreed to live with the man, and wow, Great relationships are being established. The young man, this Levite, who was once a stranger wandering around, 
Well, now he's to him like one of his sons. You know, so great bonds are getting to be built in the process of all of these things. Not only that, in verse 13, you know, Micah says, well, I mean, one of my sons, I mean, you know, look back in verse 5, he had made one of his sons a priest, but now he's got a Levite. So this is an upgrade. Surely now God is indefinitely going to be favoring him because of this. So what do you think? Micah says God is going to bless him now. And everything seems to be going well. Nobody's having any problems. You know, the Levites back in the book of Numbers and really all throughout the Old Testament, especially starting, as you might imagine, the book of Leviticus, talks about the responsibilities of Levites and what they're supposed to do is work, where they're supposed to live, how they're supposed to be relating to their Israelite brethren. The Levites were to live in specific places. They were to serve the priests. Not all Levites could even be priests, right? That was the sons of Aaron in the tribe of Levi. The sons of Aaron only could serve as priests. Levites were to serve the needs of the priests and help the priests in their work. Levites were supposed to encourage Israel to see their need for the tabernacle. They were to uphold holiness in the nation and keep their Israelite brethren accountable to God's judgments. And so here's this Levite being offered a position that lawfully he has no right to be in for reasons that he should not be attracted to and to do do a work with idolatry that should hold a lawful death penalty. But because it has pay, it's a wonderful offer. Something I want to put in your mind before we continue reading that I think might be helpful to consider. In ignorance with God, there tends to always be rebellion. Ignorance with God tends to always have some form of rebellion attached to it, right? Think about Jesus, even when he's on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. But in their ignorance was rebellion. However, as much as rebellion may be an ignorance, in rebellion there is always ignorance, right? And what we see in this is everybody is woefully, inexcusably ignorant. I want you to think about it another way. God likens idolatry to adultery, right? So I want you to imagine that there's two people in a relationship, a married relationship, right? And in that relationship, you have one person who is completely loyal to the other person. They're committed. They're doing everything they can to make the relationship work. Now imagine in this marriage, this person, again, is loyal, but their spouse is openly committing adultery on them, openly cheating. And the loyal spouse confronts the other one and says, what are you doing? You're destroying our marriage. How can you be doing this to me? Imagine this. The guilty spouse says, I thought you liked this. What do you mean this hurts you? I thought thought this was something you wanted in our relationship. I thought this was okay. How inexcusably hard-hearted and out of touch would you need to be? That's verse 13. Micah is doing all sorts of flagrant things that fundamentally God has said, this is an abomination. He says, well, now I know God's going to bless me. This is saying, I'm guilty of adultery and God must love it this way. This is a wonderful situation. Let's keep reading. In Judges 18, we're going to see the Danites seeking a territory. In Joshua 18, the tribe of Dan 
was specifically allocated by God. God outlined the borders that belonged to each tribe. Dan's borders were to be in the west of the Israelite region, uh, kind of in the line of the circle is Ephraim, and then below that is Judah is gigantic. You see that Judah is by and large way bigger than the other tribes. But between Ephraim and Judah was to be Dan. Uh, the, the Canaanites there, that's where the Philistines were, lots of powerful and fortified cities surrounded by allies. They could call for help. Um, that's a territory that just perpetually they were not conquering because they didn't put their faith in God. So the Danites, their solution, forget about that. They don't go there. And what they instead do is they journey from the region of Benjamin and they travel all the way up. And if you notice in this slide, Laish, way up there between Manasseh and Naphtali, way in the north, uh, is not even in the boundaries of Israel. But here they go to this place, Laish, to a location that we'll find is very isolated. There's no allies that could come and save them. The city's not fortified. And here they go to Laish, far away from anybody else, to conquer this territory and call it their own. So let's, let's read about that. Chapter 18, let's start in verses 1 through 13 as they, on their journey north, intersect the main road that Micah's house is on. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in, for until that day an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. Again, this gives us insight. This is pretty early on in the period of the judges. So the sons of Dan sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, Go, search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they came near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite. And they turned aside there and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? And he said to them, Thus and so has Micah done to me. And he has hired me, and I have become his priest. They said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. The priest said to them, Go in peace. Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were living in it, living, who, in it living in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. For there was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land, for they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came back to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you sit, sit still? Do not delay to go to enter to possess the land. When you enter, you will come to a secure people with a spacious land, for God has given it into your hand a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. Then from the family of the Danites, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, 600 men armed with weapons of war set out. They went up and camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. Therefore they called that place Mahana-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. They passed through from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. So the Danites, they come to the household of Micah and they lodge there. And they seemingly have no issue at all with the idolatry that's happening there. Verse 4, they find the Levite who apparently was a fairly well-known person. They recognize his voice even. They were familiar with who he was. 
And when they inquire about how he got there, he explains to them what exactly is going on. And instead of being alarmed and questioning the situation, they ask the Levite to inquire of God. So just in terms of, I think, God wanting us to really think through this, does this Levite seem like a trustworthy person to honestly inquire of the Lord? His answer is satisfying, right? Again, he uses God's name. He says, go in peace. You have the Lord's approval. And we as the readers should just have gaping wide open mouths just in shock. What is going on? It's, it's like a, a fever dream. And so obviously they go up and they find everything to be secure and the land will be easily conquered. And boy, they can just easily bully their way in. But again, in verse 10, God has given it into your hand. So everybody is very happy using God's name so long as they're succeeding and prospering. What we're seeing in Judges 17 and 18, we are seeing the reality of what God had warned them in Deuteronomy would happen to their hearts entering the land. In Deuteronomy, God was constantly saying, be careful not to forget the law. Be careful how when you enter the land and you become successful and prosperous that your hearts become hard and you forget the Lord and you become self-dependent and self-righteous. And here we are so quickly seeing the manifestation of these warnings. 14 through 26. Let's see how the Danites actually end up taking all of these idols Micah had made. Verse 14. Then the five men who went to spy out the country of Laish said to their kinsmen, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod and household idols and a graven image and molten image? Now therefore consider what you should do. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah and asked of him of his welfare. The 600 men, now kind of note this, I think that specifically is pointing out something that's going to be repeated about how intimidating the situation was. The 600 men, armed with their weapons of war, who were of the sons of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Now the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there and took the graven image and the ephod and the household idols and the molten image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men, armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod and the household idols and the molten image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They said to him, Be silent. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. And be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest of the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? The priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household idols and the graven image and went among the people. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. By the way, that's another bad sign, right? You don't put the kids, your littlest ones, way in front of you because if you get attacked, who's going to be the first to be attacked? The people in the front. Verse 22, And they had gone some distance from the house of Micah. The men who were in the houses near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. They cried to the sons of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you have assembled together? He said, you have taken away my gods which I made and the priests and have gone away. And what do I have besides? So how can you say to me what is the matter with you? So the sons of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us or else fierce men will fall upon you and you will lose your life with the lives of your household. So the sons of Dan went their way, went on their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. 
So the Danites, as they're taking the idols very eagerly, um, obviously in reading it, um, I emphasized how excited they seem to be. Just the question, you know, do you know that they're in this house in ephod, idols, graven image and a molten image? Now, therefore, consider what you should do. You can just hear the excitement like, wow, do you know the treasures that are here? And so they take these idols, the Levite is standing by, and boy, do they make a great offer. Not only was he in Micah's house, just as luck would have it, to be ready for this promotion, but he was already given this pay and this prestige and this household. Well, now the Danites, he gets to be a priest for a whole tribe in Israel. What a successful thing. It just seems like things only get better and better. And I mean, nobody's getting hurt, right? So everything's just going well for the Levite. Everything's just going um, going in his favor. And surely this must be the blessing of God that's favoring the Levite's promotions. And I'll tell you something. I think preaching concerned is something very similar. I remember seeing some time ago um, a preacher make a comment that I thought on for a long time. Um, the comment was something like this, that if a congregation with a larger number of people were ever to offer him to come there, he would tend to always take that offer because the more people that you teach, the more people you influence, the more effective you are as a preacher, right? Um, I think we have to be really, really careful with looking at preaching as a career path looking at it as something that you're looking for a certain pay or certain pay raises or something where smaller congregations are simply a stepping stone to build a resume of sermons to one day, hopefully, boy, a congregation with elders and 200 people. Now that's where the preacher really has the greatest influence. That's where they really have it made. Um, I think we really need to be careful about career-driven preaching, money-driven preachers. I mean, obviously, I'm preaching and so the finger first needs to point back to me Um, but I think this story shows that the leadership in Israel was not driven by serving by considering things in a spiritually oriented manner or perspective but simply what pays the best what gives you the best influence what gives you the most prestige among the greatest amount of people and these should be red flags that teach us through warning in seeing these events and Micah's upset Um, Obviously, they've taken things that he's invested a lot of money in, for one. And it's like he can't even hear himself. Verse 24, you've taken away the gods which I have made. Side note, nobody learns anything here, right? Nobody's considering their actions. Nobody's actually convicted by anything meaningful. The events are happening, and it's like nobody's actually honestly considering anything or learning any valuable lessons the entire time. But Mike is upset, right? So he... He says, you know, what are you doing? And verse 25, I mean, what can you say? If we're not going to follow the Lord, here's what happens. People with the most money have the greatest influence. People who have the most power, seemingly, have the most influence. Micah could say nothing because they had more power than him, so they get to get away with it. In the world, the strong have the greatest influence. The wealthiest have the greatest power. It's not to be this way in the kingdom of God. So in verse 26, Micah goes away because they were too strong for him. Uh, Let's look at how this ends in verse 27 through 31. 
Then they took what Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and came to Laish, to a people, and notice again the emphasis, quiet and secure, and struck them with the edge of the sword and they burned their city with fire. There was no one to deliver them because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone and it was in the valley, which is near Beth Rehob. They rebuilt the city and lived in it. They called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father who was born in Israel. What a shame. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. And just side note really quick again, the ESV in most translations instead of Manasseh says Moses. There's like a manuscript textual debate about that. Um, but this is in the time frame where it could very well be the grandson of Moses. And just as the book of Judges is teaching, the apple surely does fall very, very, very far from the tree. He and his sons were priests of the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. Problem? What do you think? Everything seems to be going well. They've conquered a territory. They were successful. They didn't lose the battle because God was, was against them. So the usual sign that something's wrong isn't there. Remember when they tried to conquer AI, but God was not with them? They were defeated very easily. So what's the problem, right? Then they set up this foundation of idolatry that was never undone, never. Until the tribe of Dan was obliterated from Israel they are, as a tribe, given to idolatry. You may remember later when the kingdom splits, Jeroboam um, is king of the northern tribes of Israel. He sets up idolatrous calves to worship in two locations. One is in the south in Bethel and one is in the north in Dan. Perfect place to set up an idol. Well, Let's reflect on some things as we bring the lesson to a close. Um, I'm going to tie in our points of application from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and why faith in Jesus' word is so critical. Why is it so critical that we depend on God's word, that we, we teach it, we read it with love and joy, we cultivate a congregational attachment to God's word, a respect for the authority of God's word, for really making sure that when we consider why we do what we do, that we're looking for book, chapter, and verse for what we do. But just beyond that, cultivating individual affection and joy from reading and hearing God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 6 through 16. I want to read this, and again, we'll, t- we'll try to tie in some applications from Judges in relation to what we see here said in 1 Corinthians 2. So this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, who at this time were very divided, uh, just like the, the Danites and the others, just so many things are wrong in the Corinthian church. And fundamentally, here's where Paul tries to get their focus back in. Chapter 2, verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
But just as it, as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? So fundamentally, when we're considering how to approach Judges 17 and 18, looking far back from the cross, we find as Jesus' death heightens the point that our wisdom, our thoughts, what makes sense to us, is fundamentally hostile to the wisdom of God. That we can't be mingling what we want to do with what we think God wants to do or presuming that what makes sense to us, it must be God's will. And we'll get into that more as we look at these points. But fundamentally, the cross teaches us that God's wisdom is infinitely distant from the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of mankind. And so we're dependent on what God has freely given us. And this keeps us from making a God of our own imagination. We trust that God has chosen to communicate in a very specific way and that he has testified to the truth of this communication so that those who are humbly seeking him will find him and will allow God to be God that we not create a God of our own imagination. And you can see that just as Jesus was crucified so carelessly in Judges 17, they're meant to feel these devastating, heart-piercing, heart-melting convictions when they're confronted with idolatry and it's, it's just normal, right? And this is critical. This is one of the main points I wanted to make as an application of Judges 17 and 18. If you were to read Judges 19 and 20 through 21, you will read one of the most horrific events of moral sin to ever be accomplished in Israel. And I think that coming after 17 and 18, it is a ripple effect of what started first in the attitudes that you see in 17 and 18. We're too shallow. We're too short-sighted. We have the mind of Christ offered to us. God looks deeper into the roots of cause and he looks farther into the ripple effects. So we may sin and think, well, nobody's being hurt. You know, this isn't destroying any relationship I have. This is just me making my own decision. It's foolishness. We're too shallow. We're looking at things only as they are to what it appears to be to us. And we're looking... We're looking in too close a view and not seeing the ripple effect. When God speaks, that's where it's critical for us to have faith because he sees things as they truly are. He sees the true root cause and he sees the reality of the ripple effect of our decisions. The ripple effect of what was happening in Judges 17 was going to obliterate the nation eventually because they never uprooted idolatry 
out of their system of practice. We too easily mistake our feelings as God's authority. You know, culturally, something I run into a lot as I talk to people is people associating their feelings and emotions to the Spirit of God. They'll say, well, it kind of felt like the Spirit was leading me here, or, you know, the Spirit of God was kind of, like, pushing me away from that. And it's very important that we don't undermine the role of the Spirit and the activity of the Spirit, but at the same time, it's also critical that we don't associate things that the Spirit is doing with really we're just making a God out of our own emotions. And we're saying, well, I feel good about this. Well, that must be God's approval, right? And so we have to be careful that we let God's word be true and let that be our guide and not mistake our feelings as an authority as what we see in Judges 17 and 18. And we too easily make cultural norms God's authority. You know, in Judges 17 and 18, I think a big problem was they did not properly take care of the influences from the Canaanites that surrounded them. And so, really, they were just Canaanites. Israel rapidly became just like the people all all around them. And I don't just mean this in a cultural way of those who are clearly not religious. I mean cultural Christianity, where too often we see things that seem to work and seem to attract crowds or seem to make a lot of noise in the community, and we can think, well, that seems to be working. Why don't we adapt that? Cultural norm and what others do that seems to be working, again, if it's, if it's not what God has said, then we need to put more faith in what God has said rather than what culture says is better, right? We see this with the Corinthian church. Uh, There were so many problems in the church. Division, immorality. They were even associating with with, uh, idolatry. There were doctrinal things that they were no longer practicing. They were denying the resurrection. And all of those things, what Paul does, again, fundamentally, is he's helping them see you have to start applying the mind of Christ to see deeper into cause and farther into effect. And it's when you adapt the mind of Christ and stop thinking in a natural way that you can then work out these problems and come to godly solutions. And again, the Corinthians had this problem. We too easily admire power, wealth, worldly wisdom. There are so many sayings that go around on Facebook and just in the world at large that they sound very clever, they sound very good, but if you really examine in its roots and its effect, how it really lines up with God's wisdom, it doesn't match. And something I said a long time ago is we need more biblical anthems and we need less worldly wisdom and less worldly sayings. You see this in chapter 4 in verse 8 through verse 13. But if you look at verse 8 by itself, you are already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us and indeed... I wish that you had become king so that I think we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all. The Corinthians in seeking power, wealth, and wisdom, they were in the exact opposite position as the apostles and the example that Paul left for them. And again, this, this is just a reality. I don't just mean someone else. I mean me and everybody else, all of us. This is just a reality of a struggle we have to be honest with is we too easily mistake what seems right, feels right, what just, it seems to work, it seems to yield good results, 
what doesn't seem to hurt anybody, what just seems to only actually bring a form of encouragement and godly result. We too easily mistake those things with being God's will or being equal in authority with what his word has explicitly said. You look back at verse um, 11 of 1 Corinthians 2. You know, I can't know what you prefer or what hurts you or, or what you want or what you want of me in a relationship unless you communicate that with me, right? And so we just have to be careful that we're not presuming about God what he has not clearly communicated. If you look in verse, um, verse 10 at the end of the verse, the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. These words, no matter how challenging any part of the New Testament might be, this is conveying to us the depths of God who created the universe and all existence. This is conveying to us God's emotions, his preferences, his desires, his nature, and his glory. And how could I ever think by my own imagination I could ever come to a conclusion that would in any way be equal compared to what God himself has chosen to communicate from the, the depths of his own being. We've got to be so careful about presumption. And again, what seems right to us does not make it God's will. Lastly, I think you see in Judges 17 and 18 a catastrophic failure of leadership. This church needs qualified working elders who are shepherding the church. This church needs qualified deacons serving in that role. Women fulfilling their role, men fulfilling their role, single people fulfilling their role, even outside of being married. But more than we need leaders as elders and deacons later, we need spiritually minded people now who are thinking long term in the effect of our work right now. In Deuteronomy, you see God is thinking long term. In Judges, it's short term. In Deuteronomy, you see God is very concerned about the bigger plan of where this is all going and here you are now in the bigger picture of what I'm doing. Be motivated by that. And in Judges, it's just living by the moment and it's, it's catastrophic. If we're thinking in a spiritually minded way, we're thinking about the future of this congregation. We're thinking about what does this congregation need to get elders one day? We're thinking, what do our children need to grow up to be spiritually minded and have a deep love for God, not just knowing the information about God, but seeing and understanding their need for mercy, how rich his grace is, how quick he is to deliver and save, and how God is a good father to his children who humble themselves. God's word trains us to think differently. It humbles us and it shifts us from thinking in the short term and in a shallow way to thinking deeper and long term. And I encourage you um, simply to consider more the illustration from judges and how that relates to our need to think much more critically about how much we need God's word. If there's anyone here this, this morning who um, sees their need to receive Christ, just the riches of what God is offering is inexpressible. God sees the condition we're in and he is begging us to see that he can save us and redeem us and change us. That life with him as our father is infinitely greater than life without him being hopeless and with a guarantee of eternal damnation. God is offering us life, his presence, and his victory in Jesus on the cross. Why would you delay to accept that offer? If we can do anything for you this morning, please bring it forward. We stand and sing the invitation song.